Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the capture of Guam, which was a... Uh, well, actually, what was it? I mean, it wasn't a battle. It wasn't a fight. It was. It was wasn't really in anything, to be honest. It was. Um. How can we? Do it? it was a part. There you go. It was a a part of the Spanish American War in the late nineteenth century. Although, as you'll hear, it was not very warlike whatsoever. The Spanish American War, more broadly, that certainly was a war. It was fought in eighteen ninety eight. Principally re- revolved around issues to do with. Cuban independence does that doesn't really come into this episode. Um, you know, it's just the Americans engaging one of their favourite pastimes and meddling in Cuban politics. But the end result of the uh, the Spanish American War was that uh, Cuba ended up under U.S. control, as well as some under other. You know, there were some other pretty significant territorial changes. For example, the U.S. gained control of Puerto, of Puerto Rico, uh, the Philippines, and of course. Guam, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, this war, it only lasted about three months, and all sorts of interesting stories that emerged from it, but we are just going to be focusing on the capture of Guam, uh, and Guam today is still part of the United States. It's an unincorporated territory. Uh, it's technically the me- the westernmost point of the United States. It's a long way into the Western Pacific, almost, I mean, it's, it's basically directly north of Australia. But how did Guam end up becoming a possession of the United States when, you know, it had been under Spanish control since the 16th or 17th century? Well, the capture of Guam from the United States, sorry, from the, from the Spanish to the United States obviously took place during this war and it was completely bloodless. It was a completely bloodless affair that involved a fair bit of uh, misunderstanding on the part of the Spanish who rather hilariously didn't realise the US and Spain were at war when American warships showed up to capture the island. And look, they weren't the only ones who were misinformed because uh, the Americans arrived with ships filled with regiments of armed soldiers ready to fight tooth and nail, and they just didn't have to, as you'll see, despite, you know, feeling certain that they were in for the fight of their lives here. The whole the whole story, it's great. It's uh, and, and very well recorded, too. We've got a great account of it, thanks to a bloke who was personally involved. He was there. He witnessed the whole thing, played a, quite a quite a big role in it too his name was francisco portisac right uh and his account is extremely detailed and also extremely interesting so thanks to portisac really we got this um might be portisac i don't know uh in any case thanks to him we've got a cracker of a story today so let's get to it here we go anyway we're going all the way back we're going all the way back here to 1898 which as i say was the year in which this uh this war was fought and to begin the story we're going to meet a, a fella whose name was henry glass now he was a, a u.s naval officer by the end of his career he was a rear admiral i'm not exactly sure what his rank was at the at the time of the capture of guam but he seems to have been a pretty decent bloke he fought uh, for the union during the u.s civil war had been engaged here and here there and everywhere and uh, in 1898, he was put in charge of the USS Charleston with the outbreak of the of, of the war with Spain. Now, the Charleston was a type of ship known as a protected cruiser. It's about 100 metres long. It was armoured, steam-powered, uh, metal warship, bristling with guns. Anyway, Glass, he's put in charge of the Charleston. He set sail from California with orders to head first to Honolulu in Hawaii and then to Manila in the Philippines. There's a, a larger U.S. fleet that is converging on Manila, and his orders are to go and, uh, go and take part of that. However, after getting to Honolulu, uh, he's joined by three transport ships, right? 
three transport ships all holding thousands of US troops, and he is handed sealed orders. He's told to open them when he's clear of land, and so now these four ships, the three transport ships in the Charleston, the three, the three transport ships, by the way, their names were, get ready for this, the names were the City of Peking, right, the City of Sydney, and the Australia. All of these are US ships. I mean, very weird names, you'd think, naming them after Peking, Sydney, and Australia. But there you go, all of them US warships. So that's what they were called. And, and they, were, they were carrying, as I say, thousands and thousands of soldiers between them. Anyway, Glass, he sails off with this convoy. And, uh, and when he's clear of land, he opens up the sealed orders, just as he'd been told to. And, and I can actually read you the seal, sealed orders verbatim. They've survived. So I can tell you what his exact orders were. This is what uh, Glass found inside his sealed orders when he opened them. <coughs> Upon the receipt of this order, which is forwarded by the steamship City of Peking to you at Honolulu, you will proceed with the Charleston and the City of Peking in company to Manila in the Philippine Islands. On your way, you are hereby directed to stop at the Spanish island of Guam. You will use such force as may be necessary to capture the port of Guam, making prisoners of the governor and any other officials and any armed force that may be there. You will also destroy any fortifications on said island and any Spanish naval vessels that may be there or in the immediate vicinity. These operations at the island of Guam should be very brief and should not occupy you more than one or two days. Should you find any coal at the island of Guam, you will make such use of it as you consider desirable. It is left to your discretion whether or not you destroy it. From the island of Guam, proceed to Manila and report to Rear Admiral George Dewey, USN, for duty in the squadron under his command. So a little side quest then, you might think, for our mate Glass there is loot and XP waiting for him in Guam. But I mean, he's been told it's not going to, you know, just going to take a day or two to go and capture this island. How hard could it be? He orders this change of course towards Guam, but you know all the sailors and the soldiers aboard the ships, they're all rabid with curiosity as to what's going on. There are rumours flying about this, talk of them going to this secret island in the Pacific to join up with a huge fleet that was going to attack the Philippines. I mean, not too far from the truth. They were later going to go and meet up with, uh, as I say, Dewey and, and his squadron. But uh, there's also talk of them going to this Spanish island somewhere in the Pacific that was filled with coal that was heavily defended by warships and soldiers. And... That ended up. That rumor ended up being a little closer to the truth because the next day, Glass he comes out. And he addresses the troops. He addresses the sailors. He tells them what the orders are going to be. They were off to capture Guam. They were going to go and capture this island for the old red, white, and blue. But here's the issue, right? Along with the sealed orders, Glass has given the latest military intelligence that the Americans have on the island. And when I say latest, I'm being pretty generous because this intelligence originated from. 1895 or perhaps 1896 so it is years old by now right travelers had reported strong coastal fortifications with these great big guns and artillery batteries at the main port and glass was also warned about the possibility of spanish warships there defending the island and additionally there was no intelligence about the size of any garrisons or land forces on the island so that to assume there would be a stiff battle for control of the island that was the safest thing to do so his sealed orders are saying it's going to take a day or two, but based on the intelligence he's got, well, it could be a very, very different story. And uh, all of the intelligence that had been handed to him, in addition to the sealed orders, that were actually, you know, this information was backed up by people who had visited Guam relatively recently. For example, the third officer of the ship Australia. He's, this is a fellow whose name was T.A. Hallett, and he'd been to Guam before. 
So he sat down with Glass and everyone else, and he's telling them about the strong military presence that the Spanish had had, had there, the batteries and the guns and the defences are all manned by Spanish troops, and the fact that they were going to have a bit of an uphill battle to get to it to seize the island. So as a result, Glass, he goes, geez, I better get these blokes into fighting shape here. He orders a little last-minute training for the sailors aboard the Charleston. He has the city of Peking sail ahead of the Charleston, and drop empty boxes into the sea, which he then had his gunners aim at and, you know, aim and shoot at with the guns aboard the Charleston to give them a bit of practice. They continued shooting drills like this as they continued on towards Guam. And apparently, I mean, the, the relatively inexperienced crew, the, the gunner crews of the, uh, of the Charleston, apparently did, they did a good job. They impressed glass. They bolstered the morale of both the sailors on the Charleston and the troops who were being transported on these other ships. So these blokes, I'll tell you this, they're ready for a fight. They expected to, you know, face off at sea against these Spanish coastal batteries and warships. They, were, they thought they were going to be up against heavy artillery. And then on land, they thought there were going to be thousands of seasoned Spanish troops fighting to defend their island. They were they were spoiling for a scrap too. As they cruised towards Guam, these, these Americans, they're looking forward to getting the cane out of the cupboard, getting, giving the Spanish a damn good thrashing here. But uh, at this point, right, with the Americans en route, the convoys en route to Guam. Let's let's jump over to Guam, right? And let's not let, let's not just talk about the situation there in, in 1898. Let's 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 talk about its history more broadly. Guam had been inhabited since around 2000 BCE, right? So people have been there quite a long time by the Chamorro. These are an Austronesian people that left the Philippines and they'd headed over to Guam and set up shop there. They had pottery and stoneworking. They built raised houses and very unusually for Pacific Island civilization, they far- civilizations, they farmed rice. It's believed that they were the only Pacific people to actually, you know, to, to farm rice before there was a, before wider contact with, uh, you know, with the broader world there. Anyway, it was none other than the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan who was the first European to visit Guam. And we've actually talked about this on the podcast before, episode 106, Get Across It. Uh, You'll remember from that episode that uh, Magellan did not have a happy visit to Guam at all. The Chamorro, they rowed out to Magellan uh, on their outrigger canoes and they started nicking everything that wasn't tied down, particularly stuff made of metal. You remember me talking about that. And Magellan responded in the grand tradition of European colonists everywhere by killing a bunch of them and burning down their houses. So... That was in 1521 uh, when Magellan visited. A couple of decades later, in, uh, in 1565, the Spanish are back again. Uh, Magellan, despite being Portuguese, you remember he was sailing, he was sailing for the Spanish. Uh, but the Spanish this time, they've brought their flags and they plant them in the sand. The explorer, explorer Miguel López de Legazpi, he claimed Guam for Spain and then Spain proceeded to do exactly nothing with Guam for about 100 years. So there's some colonisation that we can all get behind, painting, you know, painting the map if you have to do that, but then leaving the locals alone, not too bad. But obviously it didn't last. In, uh, in 1668, the Spaniards, they're back this time with that most despicable and pestilent of colonists, the missionary. And, uh, you know, as well as, of course, all the new and exciting diseases that the poor Chamorro had never encountered. And tens of thousands of them died. Tens of thousands of Chamorro died. An estimated population of 50,000 was reduced to under 5,000. And those that survived were forced to adopt a Spanish religion, language and way of life. Very typical story for, you know, the colonization of any, any area outside of Europe by European forces, of course. Anyway, the Spanish... Established his colony in Guam, it became a very important port uh, for Spanish shipping across the Pacific. 
And over the coming centuries, the island was developed with farms and roads and schools and hospitals, as well as these defensive military buildings, f- fortresses that dotted the, uh, the coastline here. But by the time we get to the late 19th century, Guam is still a Spanish possession. It's principally linked now to the Philippines. Um, and it is visited uh, somewhat less often. Still, you know, there are still ships coming and going, but uh, not, not as many as perhaps used to be. You know, there are ships that are traversing the, the Pacific, you know, whalers and merchant ships, even military vessels. But it's a little out of the way. It's not in regular communication with the Spanish authorities. And, you know, they still claim dominion over the islands, but they're not in regular touch with, uh, touch with each other. Which brings us to perhaps the funniest thing about this whole story. As Glass and his convoy were bearing down on Guam, obviously, you know, a military operation in full swing. This bloke knows that his orders are going to go and capture this island, destroy his fortifications, take everyone prisoner and sink all the Spanish warships there. Glass knows he's at war. But if you'll believe it, the people living on Guam have absolutely no idea that they are with they are at war with the United States. The last time that the Spanish authorities had been in touch was in April, a week or so before the war began, and it's now June. By the time that uh, that Glass and his convoy arrive in Guam, it's the twentieth of June. I mean, the war has been going on for two months, and no one on Guam has any idea whatsoever. What's more, right? All this military intelligence that the U- that the US, the Americans, they thought they had about Guam, completely false, completely wrong. The Spanish haven't maintained much of a military presence on Guam at all in recent years. There's barely a handful of troops. The, the, you know, these much talked about defences, the fortifications, whatever else, they've all fallen into disrepair. So you can imagine how the Guamanians responded when they saw these four US ships cruising towards the island. They're, they're going, oh, a visitor, how nice. Conversely, the Americans aboard the convoy are a little bit disappointed when they see that there are no ships defending the island. There's just a solitary Japanese trading vessel that gets out of the way very quickly. But as the American ships approach, right, many Guamanians, they, you know, they, they come out to welcome them into a port, in, into port at a place called Piti, right? And as these American ships come in, all the Guamanians there, they're going, oh, look at them there, they come, oh, they go, visitors from America, that's interesting, I wonder what they're doing, I wonder what they're doing in this neck of the woods, that sort of thing. And then wouldn't you know it, these fine, upstanding Americans, they do Guam the honour of firing their guns in salute as they came near the island. Oh, well, they did shoot their guns just a little close to that old fortress there, didn't they? But look, it's it's run down and damaged. No real harm done. They don't seem to have made it any worse. So no worries. How grand of them to salute us like that. Oh my goodness, what a treat to see this. This is not a joke. The Guamanians who came out to welcome these US ships into port thought that the opening barrage of gunfire from the American ships was them saluting them. They thought it was a 13-gun salute, right? And Captain Pedro Duarte Andura of the Spanish Marine Corps, who is there witnessing these, uh, you know, these, these warships bearing down on Guam, he decides, if you'll believe it, that they bloody well better answer this American salute appropriately. So he sends off a messenger to the Guamanian capital, Aganya, right? These days known as Hagatnya, to ask the governor, Don Juan Marina, for artillery so they can, re- this re- they, they can return this very grand and very respectful gesture by their, uh, their esteemed visitors. 
you might think that I'm taking the piss and embellishing this. Absolutely not. This is actually what happened. And the reason we know this is because of our mate Francisco Portisac that I mentioned before. He was there to witness it on the dock at Pity with his, with his very own eyes. As these Americans approached, they fired on the, this old fort no less than 13 times, as I say. And, you know, this is what you do. This is your opening salvo. You come in, you assert your dominance, you start firing on the enemy's defences. But the Guamanians are just there going, oh, a 13-gun salute for us? Oh, my goodness, aren't we lucky? Anyway, while waiting for the artillery from the capital, some of the Spanish in Piti, they decide that they geez, they better head out to these mighty American ships to bid them welcome and thank them for such a, 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 a tremendous entrance that, that they'd made there. And uh, so, so these, these fellas, they, one of them is Jose Portisac, uh, the brother of Francisco. They, these four blokes, they hop into a small boat and they head out to the Charleston. Now, on board the Charleston, glasses realise, well, bloody hell, that, that fortress has run down. No one seems to be firing back. What are we going to do here? Because, like, we're not under attack. So we better sort of just hold our horses here and see what the next move is. And the next move is, right, welcoming, or I say welcoming, it's not even greeting, really, taking these four blokes on board that come in from the island of Guam and taking them as prisoners. Didn't they get a surprise when they arrived? You know, these four blokes, they get in their boat, they head out to the ship and they're all like, oh, g'day, you blokes, welcome to Guam, great to have you along, cheers very much for that big salute, we love that, although be careful, you know, nearly damaged that fortress over there. But Glass, he goes, I don't know what you boys are talking about. I mean, it wasn't a salute, we're at war and you blokes are now my prisoners. I mean, that just, you know, just about knocks the socks off these fellows who came across as a welcome party. But, hey, they're not about to argue. The American ships are filled with guns and soldiers, and they're just four blokes in a small boat. So they stand around. They have a chat with Glass, and they, you know, are brought up to speed as to their position. But Glass, you know, very quite gentlemanly of him, he agrees to release his prisoners temporarily once they agree to go to Agania themselves and inform Governor Marina of the situation and tell him to, you know, get himself ready to, to meet the Americans on their ships and discuss surrender of the, the, you know, the surrender of the island, seeing as no one's putting up a fight on the Spanish side. The whole scene must have been an absolute farce, as you can imagine. But the four blokes, they were released. Uh, they promised to go to Agania, tell the governor what was going on, and, and they sailed back to, uh, to shore to head to the capital. But it gets better. It doesn't stop there, my friends. Check this out. Our mate Francisco Portisac, right, he's got a little boat of his own. He's got a little fleet, he's a little merchant. He's a, he's a trader, he's a whaler, he's doing all sorts of stuff in Guam. Anyway, he decides that he's going to head out to the American ships as well, just after the other blokes. He's got a very good reason to do this, uh, as we'll discover in just a minute. But before he does, he hauls up an American flag and he ties it, he ties it from the top, the mast or whatever of his boat, and he sails out to the Charleston following the others. And as they're going on board and becoming prisoners, he approaches the Charleston and he's greeted by name by one of the blokes on board. Remember T.A. Hallett, the uh, the fellow who had been to Guam before, the officer on the Australia? He recognises Francisco Portisac and he yells out to me, oh, g'day, Frank, mate, how are you? Why don't you come on board and catch up? Portisac boarded the Charleston as a friend of one of the officers and gets a very different reception to the other Guamanians who are currently in the middle of their rude awakening finding out about the war. In the meantime, while they're getting dressed down, Portisac, he's catching up with Hallett and, you know, talking to some other blokes that he recognises on board. But then, oh, some trouble starts. The navigator of the Charleston, he marches over to where Portisac is chatting with Hallett and everyone else. He says, listen here, mate, 
What's this with you sailing over with that American flag on you? By what right are you sailing the, the red, white and blue on your ship here, mate? Because, you know, if you, you're bloody, you're walking and talking like a Spaniard, so I'm not sure how much I like that. And Portisacchi turns to the navigator and he says, well, mate, I'll tell you what, calm down. Have a read of this one here. Pulls out of his pocket. His U.S. naturalization papers dated 1888. Portisac is a U.S. citizen. Despite being born in Barcelona, he moved to Chicago in 1885. He was naturalized as a citizen three years later, married an American woman, moved to California, and then finally took her over to Guam and settled down there. But he's still a U.S. citizen. He's got the paperwork to back it up, and that means he's allowed to fly the, the stars and stripes from his ship. So... Once they realise he's an American citizen, right, who this other American Hallett has recognised out of nowhere because he'd visited Guam before, he was taken to Glass, right? Glass had finished with the others by this stage. And, he, and I'll tell you this, Glass, very happy indeed to find out that there is a US citizen in the middle of this bloody island that he's trying to capture. Let me tell you this. So, Portisac. He gets chatting with Glass and they catch up and, you know, tells him about his situation as he's, you know, he's this trader, he's this waiter, he's got all these boats. And uh, the little fleet, right, Glass says, well, listen here, mate, if you've got this little fleet of boats, maybe you could actually do me a favour here. Maybe you could transport some coal and some provisions from Guam to the American ships. And listen, I'll pay you. Don't worry about it. I'll, 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 I'll sort you out with some money. But Portisac, no. He is a red-blooded American, and he says, I absolutely will not accept payment if we're at war with Spain and therefore Guam. Even if it's my home, it is my patriotic duty to steal the coal and provisions and provide them to you on my boats. Don't even worry about it, mate. I'll take care of I'll take care of that for you. He is the only US citizen for who knows how many hundreds of kilometers apart from obviously the blokes and the American warships there. And he is ready to step up and do his bit for the red, white, and blue. He heads back to shore, he orders his staff to load up his boats with coal, and he says, You take that quick smart out to the American convoy the very next morning, alright? Anyway. Portisac, he stepped up to the plate in a major way here. It's very, very funny indeed. But after he's done uh, done this and organised the, the shipment of coal and whatever else to the ships, Portisac, he heads ashore. He meets his brother, Jose, and the two of them head home together. Jose fills him in on what had happened with the, uh, you know, the declaration of war and the, you know, the, other, the other Spanish officers being taken prisoner, whatever else. Um, but they head back to their place. Um, as as while the other Spanish fellows headed to uh, Aganya, uh, you know, as ordered, as we, as we said, to tell uh, Governor Moreno about what was going on. But... How's this? On the way back home, the Portisac brothers, you'll never guess who they come across, right? They overtook a couple of soldiers who were in the process of dragging artillery back to Agunya. They'd brought it all the way from the capital, right? They'd pulled it all, almost 10 kilometres only to then be told, oh, it's not needed. We don't need to salute these American ships after all. And now <laughs> these poor blokes are dragging it all the way back along the road here. What a bloody pain in the ass for those two. Anyway, the Portisac brothers, they arrive home, very quickly realise that Marina had been informed of the Americans arriving and their demands for surrender. And they also learn that Marina is not very happy about this situation and in particular was not happy with Francisco. He knows he's a U.S. citizen, and so there is a letter waiting for him from Marina when he arrives home that threatens him with execution if he should help the Americans in any way. I guess Marina knew that Portisac, as the only U.S. citizen in Guam, might be a bit of a threat to the... I mean, I was going to say the Spanish war effort, but I mean, you can hardly call it that. In any case, Marina, he threatens him all the same. He said that if Portisac... He said that Portisac would be executed the next morning on the beach if Marina heard anything about any help or assistance or anything that he'd given to the Americans. I mean, Governor Marina, 
he's pissed off. Let me tell you this. These US ships bristling with guns, filled with soldiers, they've come out of nowhere. They've taken people prisoner, demanding him to come, you know, come aboard their ships to organise Guam's surrender. Spain has hung him out to dry. Didn't bother telling him that, you know, there's a war on. Didn't bother reinforcing the island with, you know, any with any real military or, or you know, any naval presence, any warships like that. He's got these crumbling fortifications. He's got no one looking after them. I mean, that's it. No wonder he's spitting chips, threatening to execute people. Anyway, after hearing that Americans are ordering him to come aboard their ships and, dis- and discuss surrender, he puts together a reply. He sends a messenger back to Glass to deliver it, which, which we'll come to in a moment, because it's not the only piece of correspondence from the governor that Glass sees that day. No, Portisac, right? After, after initially he kind of laughs off Marina's threats. He thinks, oh, whatever, mate, talking out your bum. The Americans are here. They're here to take over the island. You can't stand in the way of it, right? He actually starts to get a bit worried. He chats to his wife and his brother about it, and he thinks, oh, bloody hell, I've already told him to load the coal onto the ships. If Marina finds out about this, I might be, I might be bloody cactus here. So he thinks, I've got to do something about this, right? He decides he wants another word with Glass to secure his position, make sure he's, he's, you know, he's under the protection of the Americans here. So he heads back to Petey, uh, to the Charleston. Now, Glass, welcome Portisac on board once again. And by this stage, getting late in the day, he invites him to dinner. And the two of them, they sit down, they discuss the plan to take Guam and the threat to Portisac's life by the, uh, you know, the hands of the governor. Glass tells Portisac that he's going to demand that Marina uh, surrenders Guam to the Americans or he'll start shelling a Ghana from the water. Not a particularly subtle way to meet his objectives, but, you know, I suppose it might work. So while the two, they're chatting, you know, they're having their dinner, they're, they're, they're chatting about this thing, right? Who's this? Turns up to uh, turns up to uh, interrupt their uh, their meal here. It is the messenger from Governor Marina, and he brings with him this letter that the governor had written, the one that I mentioned earlier. And I can read it for you now because we also know exactly what this letter says. And here it is, <clears throat> Mister Henry Glass, Captain of the North American cruiser Charleston. By the captain of the port in which you have cast anchor, I have been courteously requested as a soldier and, above all, as a gentleman to hold a conference with you, adding that you have advised him that war has been declared between our respective nations and that you have come for the purpose of occupying these Spanish islands. It would give me great pleasure to comply with his request and see you personally, but as the military laws of my country prohibit me from going on board a foreign vessel, I regret to have to decline this honour and ask that you will kindly come on shore where I await you to accede to your wishes as far as possible and to agree as to our mutual situations. Asking your pardon for the trouble I cause you, I guarantee your safe return to your ship. Very respectfully, Juan Marina, the Governor. Now, this is pretty bloody gutsy. Of Marina, I think I think you've I think we've all got to agree. Pretty bloody gutsy of this bloke. Let's remind ourselves of his situation for a second here. These U.S. ships have showed up with the news that they're at war. The Spanish have left about fifty blokes manning some decrepit and rundown fortifications, and Marina. I mean, he doesn't have a navy. He's barely got an army, and I'll tell you what he definitely doesn't have, and that is a leg to stand on. No support from Spain. He's been hung out to dry, as we say. It was pretty bloody courageous of him to send this letter, playing a hand that he didn't have in attempting to, you know, negotiate with the Americans. But it did give Glass pause. Glass didn't trust a word of the message. Interestingly, he he was very suspicious. He thought this was a ruse on the part of the governor. He thought that, uh, that Marina was playing funny buggers here. So he decided 
that his plan would now be to issue this ultimatum first thing in the morning, right? He was going to demand the immediate surrender of Guam uh, to the American forces. And if Marina didn't surrender, it would be bloody blam, blam, thank you, ma'am. He'd start shelling a gun, yeah. So Portisac went home, very interested to see what the next development would be, you know, what was going to happen tomorrow, while Glass and his men, they organised their plan to demand surrender when, you know, more or less as soon as the sun rose. Glass decided to present Marina with this ultimatum and give him half an hour to consider it. And so when the sun came up on the next morning, the morning of the 21st of June, the day after the Americans arrived, they'd arrived before on the 20th, a small party went aboard, uh, went ashore at Pity under a flag of truce to deliver this ultimatum. Now, Marina was there, sure enough, Glass stayed aboard his ship, but Marina was there to uh, to, to receive these uh, visitors, I guess we could call them, diplomatically speaking. Anyway, Marina was there and he met the US contingent who read Glass's message demanding <clears throat> the immediate surrender of the defences of the island of Guam with arms of all kinds, all officials and persons in the military service of Spain now in this island. The Americans gave Marina and the Spanish half an hour, as I say, to think it over and reminded Marina very pointedly of the huge number of US soldiers aboard the ships in the harbour, all very ready for a scrap. Now, Marina and his officers, having been given this, you know, this 30-minute period, they used every last bit of it. And they didn't waste time returning to a suitably grand house or anything like that to, uh, you know, to talk it over and think about things. No, they ducked into a nearby boat shed of all places to uh, to have a chat about things. And 29 minutes later, they really ran down the clock, 29 minutes after the ultimatum had been delivered, they re-emerged with a sealed letter for Glass to read. They handed it over to the officers for him to deliver, for the, you know, for them to, to head back to the Charleston and deliver it to Glass. But the Americans didn't worry about that. They just tore the, uh, the, the letter open then and there. They, I mean, Marina, he was Furious. Marina had expected this message to be taken out to, to Glass personally, but no, Americans, the Americans there, they had a rather more direct way of dealing with things. They busted the sealed envelope open and they read its contents. Marina, he is hopping mad. A terrible breach of etiquette this is, but what's he going to do? I mean, what, what can he do, right? And as the letter was revealed to contain, I mean, can you guess a very sensible decision to surrender to the Americans? Marina was immediately taken prisoner, protestations or no. He wasn't happy about this. He accused the Americans of playing funny buggers. Remember, it was the Americans that were suspecting him of being up to no good, but, you know, he ended up playing it straight and surrendering and he was taken as a prisoner of war straight away. As a result, he's protesting, saying that taking him as a prisoner after coming ashore under a flag of truce was a terrible misdeed, but then again, he's just offered a total surrender. So, I mean, I don't know what he's expecting here. Anyway, the Spanish officers, they were allowed to, like, uh, to write letters to their families explaining what was going on, and Marina was instructed to order the entire Spanish military on Guam to assemble at Petey that afternoon in order, to be, uh, in, you know, in order to be taken prisoner as well. And have a guess how many there were. I think I've already said. 54. 54, of the, 54 Spanish soldiers were taken prisoner. Remember, the US had come expecting a fierce battle against ships and soldiers and everything in between, but in the end, they took 54 soldiers prisoner. In the middle of a war, Spain left Guam defended with 54 soldiers, and as a result, the island was captured by the Americans without a single drop of blood being spilt. The Spanish officers and soldiers, they were taken aboard the US ships uh, to be taken to the rest of the US fleet that was bound to Manila, I mentioned before. And meanwhile, the Americans, they went ashore to take possession of the island rather more officially with 
the most official thing that you can use to claim a broad area of land, as we've learned from the, you know, the colonial history of much of the Western world, a flag. Glass went up to one of the fortifications and he raised the US flag while the military brand, uh, bands that were on the ships, they played the, 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 the star-spangled banner as the, uh, as the flag was risen. Which, interestingly, by the way, wasn't the official national anthem of the United States at that point. It wasn't adopted until 1931. Usually, back then, it was Hail Columbia or My Country Tis of Thee that was played as a, as a de facto national anthem. But yeah, it wasn't until the 30s that, uh, that, uh, that the Star Spangled Banner was actually officially made the national anthem. Anyway, with this... Guam became a U.S. possession and has been ever since. To this very day, Guam is still, as I mentioned, a U.S. territory. But Glass wasn't quite yet finished. He had one more thing he needed to do before he left. You'll remember how the day before he had organised for Portisac to load up some boats with some coal and provisions and, and whatnot and, and transfer all of that over to the U.S. ships. And, you know, Portisac, he'd left into action, he'd agreed to do this. Well, he was as good as his word, and after the capture of the island, and Spanish and once its Spanish Spanish officers and military had been brought aboard these American ships, the next thing to be brought uh, brought aboard the ships were, were these provisions and this coal that uh, that Portisac had agreed to uh, to provide. His boats brought the promised uh, goods over to the ships, loaded it up, and it took them till the next day, the twenty second, to actually. Uh, get everything on board. So, I mean, the sealed orders that Glass were given, they were correct. Uh, They said it would only take a day or two. It ended up taking just a day or two to get everything done. But once this process was finished, once this had all been loaded up, Glass summoned Portisac into his cabin aboard the Charleston one last time with a surprising bit of news. With the island now in US hands and the Spanish governor imprisoned, Guam was without an official leader. It needed a new governor. And there was but one single U.S. citizen on the entire island. So who did Glass choose to be in charge of the U.S.'s newest territorial acquisition? Glass had been so impressed with the way that Portisac had immediately leapt into action to help the Americans as they arrived. Now he'd agreed to furnish them with coal and supplies and everything else that he decided to appoint him as the first U.S. governor of the island of Guam. Francisco Portisac, this humble merchant and whaler who had been born halfway across the world in Spain, had been naturalised as a US citizen and then moved to the middle of the Pacific, was now the governor of an island. Glass offered to leave some troops behind to support the new administration, but Portisac, he declined. He said, no, no, look, I'm not expecting any trouble from my new subjects. Glass congratulated him warmly, said, best of luck to you, Mr. Governor. We'll be back soon to sort everything out. Don't you worry about it. And he got ready to head off. Now, it does turn out that Portisac probably... Probably should have accepted the offer of extra troops to stay there because he didn't last long. As a governor, he was overthrown by Guam's former treasurer, Jose Sisto, who controlled all the money on the island and therefore found it rather easy to overthrow poor old Portisac there. But he himself was overthrown by a bloke named Venancio Roberto not too long after that. And Roberto ruled for two days before he was overthrown as well in early 1899 when a new US warship arrived and reinstated, interestingly, Sisto, not... um, not Portisac there, but I mean, look, Sisto didn't last much longer after that as well. He lasted a month and his successors didn't do too much better. The first governor of Guam, incidentally, to last for more than a year in the position was a bloke whose name was Seton Schroeder and he wasn't appointed until 1900. So a bit of a tumultuous time in, in Guamanian politics there. Anyway, nonetheless, our mate Portisac, he still appears on the records as the first US governor of Guam, although some lists put glasses number one just for a day when he captured the island, but it is Portisac that we have to thank for this entire story. 
as he was the one who wrote it all down in great detail. Um, and you can actually go to the U.S. Naval Institute's website and you can read it all for yourself. It's it's a really, really interesting thing to get across. He even talks about what happened with him and Sisto after Glass left. He offers a bit of insight as to what happened on Guam once the Americans had actually departed. But to end today's episode, I want to share with you the final thing that Glass did, or rather, I should say, didn't do as he completed his bloodless capture of Guam. The, ter- the territory has remained in U.S. hands ever since Glass made his visit back in 1898, and it's quite remarkable that Glass was able to pull this off without spilling a drop of blood. And, you know, a, a testament, I guess, to, well, maybe not a testament to his skill as a, as, as a military officer, maybe just a testament to the fact that Spanish had kind of, you know, caught, been caught with their pants down there, but all the same. The U.S. captured this island. Their control of it was confirmed after the Spanish-American War finished in 1898. The, the, the Treaty of Paris of that year confirmed the fact that the U.S. had dominion over this island. And since then, the Americans, they've, they've defended it. They've fought for it. They fought the Battle of Guam in 1944 to recapture the island when the, uh, when the Japanese managed to seize control of it. But to go back to Glass back in 1898, to go back to the orders that he was given, these sealed orders he was handed in Honolulu, you may remember that one of those orders was to destroy any fortifications that were on the island. But Glass, he thought better of these orders. And as he packed up his troops and his sailors and his prisoners and set sail towards Manila, he decided not to fire on the old Spanish fortifications and destroy them. And in doing so, he ensured their eventual preservation through to this very day. I reckon this bloke was all right, Henry Glass. Not only did he make sure the capture of Guam was bloodless, not only did he fight for the Union during the American Civil War, so he ended up on the right side of history on that one, he also avoided perpetrating an act of senseless historical vandalism in destroying these forts that were already run down and and, and falling into disrepair. And as a result of this long-sighted and rather bold decision in Guam to leave the fortresses alone in direct contravention of the orders he'd been given, many of these old Spanish forts still stand in various states of preservation and can still be visited and enjoyed to this very day. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the capture of Guam, and it is fantastic to get across a bit of naval history. We love to hear it here on half Ass History. And fantastic to get across just a really, really silly story once again. If you've got a silly story like this, I want to hear it. Here are the boring housekeeping things uh, coming away now. Halfhousehistory.net. Contact form there. Please get in touch. Let me know if you've got a story like the capture of Guam or anything like it. I want to hear it. I want to get across it. And I want to share it with the rest of our listeners here. Thank you to everyone who gets in touch week in, week out. I do get so many emails. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to. <laughs> My mum says I'm not allowed to re- reply to them all. No, uh, they are just too. There's, there's just too many of them for me to get uh, get back to. But I do appreciate. And of course, I read every single one of them. Uh, so thanks to everyone doing that. And also, by the way, thank you to people who listen to this outro. I know by now, like I can see the viewerships, the, the viewerships, the listenership statistics. There's a huge drop off at the end of every episode. So thank you to you, a true fan of half Ass history for listening to this dumb podcast all the way through to the last minute. Good on you. Patreon hasn't changed. Still got the stuff there. You can get all the, you can get bonus episodes, bonus episodes. You get bonus content. Sorry, I haven't done any bonus episodes. Uh, behind the scenes stuff, uh, uncut episodes, uh, show notes. 
uh, and also exclusive merch there available uh, and unexclusive merch, inclusive merch available at the shop there. You can find the link at uh, halfhousehistory.net. And a special thank you, of course, to all the patrons and a less special thank you to all the people who listen for free. I mean, still thanks, just not as much, you know. We're, we're, everyone's getting thanked, but some people just getting thanked a little more than others. Um, and thank you to the people sharing the good word of Half House History. Had a couple of, of, of emails in this week te- uh, from people telling me that, you know, their their friends or family, their sons, daughters, mums, dads, whoever else had, had put them on to a Half House History. And those numbers are going up and up every week. So thank you so much to everyone who's uh, spread the good word. Uh, keep doing it. Got to get those numbers up. Rookie numbers in this game, of course. Anyway, that is that. We're closing out the question posed on Reddit. This one is only very tangentially related to what we've talked about today, but it is just such a funny and dumb joke that I really couldn't resist. Um, Guam played a role in the Pacific theatre of the Second World War, and that is our tenuous link to this question that was posed by Not Jimmy Buffett on Reddit, and it's a really dumb joke, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did that thing where I like quickly exhaled... um, air through my nose when I read it. So I hope the same thing happens to you when I tell you this 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 very dumb joke. Here it is, uh, once again, from not Jimmy Buffett on Reddit. Are you ready? <clears throat> Was Casablanca playing in the Pacific Theatre during World War II? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>